invite you to be turning in your Bibles from Micah chapter 1. Hopefully you have a bookmark there. We began a, a series last week on this minor prophet, and um, I know it's kind of hard to believe, but I actually saw grimaces and headaches going on in the congregation <laughs> as we tried to dive deep and bring out the time and place of Micah. To give you a little bit of context, though, um, God is sovereignly working through Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God then hands over the Israelites to Joshua, who conquers the promised land, making Israel's boundaries, but that's just in time for a long era called the time of the Judges. And in that time, Israel wars with other people and with each other until they go against God's command and they desire a king. King Saul is their first king. He goes power hungry and then God anoints King David. And then David and his son Solomon are forever the measuring rod of kings in Israel. But after their two reigns, the kingdom splits with Israel and its capital, uh, Samaria, up in the north, and then Judah in its capital, Jerusalem in the south. And then Micah is a prophet from the south, prophesying about both kingdoms. In our text today, Micah's ministry is near the end of the northern kingdom, which ended in 722 B.C. as a nation called Assyria is on the brink and coming to take these northern Israelites captive. We're going to be reading just four verses today, and you could say I'm preaching to you two small sermons. <laughs> the reason I say that is, is because we're going to be going through the passage twice, and we're going to be taking different approaches each time. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today, if you're able to stand. Micah ch chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> Micah says, listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion. And the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Let's pray. Father, we often come to these Old Testament prophets and some of us uh, have to really labor through them. But we also firmly believe that you don't waste ink. And that you've given us your word in this fashion for a reason that all of it is to be read and that you speak to us through each and every word. So we pray that you would be the one speaking today, that hearts that are hard hardened, that you would soften, that people who need a word from your mouth, who, who need daily bread to feast on, that you would supply it. Father, for those that are distant from you or unsaved, would you close the gap today? For those of us who are waiting to hear your voice, would you speak loud and clear so 
get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you have a cheat sheet of our sermon, our first organization of this passage. It's going to be categorized into four movements, starting with T's. Micah first tells us to take note. Then he cues us into a theophany. That's a sophisticated word, meaning the appearance of a deity. Micah then tells us that God is coming to trample over peoples and earth. And then lastly, Micah recounts the transgressions that brought this. Take note. Theophany, trample, transgressions. Before we dive in, to get you thinking about this, though, in premarital counseling, the previous pastor here, Gil George, asked Christy and I a question that I've asked the two times I have got to do premarital guidance, as I call it, because I think counseling is a little bit above my pay grade (laughs) or my education degree. But that question is, is what role did you play in your immediate family? And what Gil meant by that is, were you a comedian? Were you the third parent? Were you the goody two-shoes? Were you the black sheep? And the reason for this question was to bring out from each person their role and maybe uh, how it might inform the way they act and the family that they're about to make by marrying someone. Also, it helped to know to get your spouse better. I was the goody two-shoes. I was the Pharisee, the rule keeper. I was pretty much perfect. I mean, (laughs) obviously, no. But I was one who studied to maintain this role of perfection that I had nailed down. And how I studied was that my dear brother, Gene, three years older than me, and more than a brother, he's one of my best friends, he was the rebel. And he and I were the proverbial odd couple. We had the perfect one and the rebel. And I remember countless debates that he and my dad would have when Gene was in trouble, which was fairly often. And sometimes heated arguments, uh, other times just long talks. And I'm usually a, a pretty quiet guy. I can't say too much without my notes. But Dad and Gene would talk for hours, and on many occasions, I was usually around taking mental notes. Here's what not to do to stay out of trouble. Here's what Gene did and why it didn't work. Here's here's what Dad thinks about that. Here's what will get you into trouble. And I took notes, and I stayed out of a lot of trouble that way. I, I didn't need... Dad to tell me I've been around the blocks a few times more than you because my brother Gene was going around the proverbial block and getting in trouble. And Dad would tell him that bit. So I took notes. Little did I know that this was biblical. God, through Micah, says at the beginning in verse 2, Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. All you peoples, pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. Seems kind of global that God wants the entire world to be paying attention here. And it has been said, too, that all you peoples sometimes refer to a specific people group. And earth uh, sometimes is used elsewhere in the original language to simply mean land. 
So God could be saying, look, all the people of the land. Nevertheless, God is calling people to witness what is about to happen here. God wants the Kevins to take note as a reprimand is about to be carried out. But also note that Micah says, the Lord God, or the Sovereign Lord, will be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. So, so take note, we just don't have parents to reprimand our actions, but we also have a Sovereign Lord. The prophets are constant reminders to the covenant community that unlike all other people who believe the world is ruled by the whims of nature, or the whims of a warring so-called lowercase gods, that the world is actually ruled by a sovereign Lord who sees all, is perfect, is righteous, and demands justice, and will have it. He rules and he reigns and he will be a witness against you. He sees all things, every sinful action, Every evil thought, every word spoken behind closed doors, every person that you and I have ripped off, every relationship we have wronged, every act of injustice. It's not as these things will go unchecked. Paul says in Romans 14, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The author of Hebrews says in this fourth chapter, 13th verse, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Peter says that people will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. How certain is Micah in this? Very certain. The, the, the beginning of verse 3 assures us that, look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down. Theophany. God's leaving his place. He's leaving where he rules and reigns, where he enacts justice, where he resides in all his glory and holiness. And he's coming down to where we are, to our realm, to human history, God appearing, God manifesting himself. Something's never changed. This is, this is how it is with kids. Calvin's not old enough for me to have done this yet, really, but I remember when me, the perfect one, and the, the rebel brother of mine were kids and sharing a bedroom. And you know how it goes if you've ever shared a bedroom with a sibling. It's way past our bedtime. We're chatting, laughing, giggling, playing games. We're tossing stuffed animals back and forth from our beds. And our parents outside in the living room, go to bed, you do. And eventually, what does he say? I'm going to come in there. <laughs> right? That's a dad offening. He's going to show himself. That's, that is the language of judgment, discipline. See, there have been rules and laws set up from the beginning of time. And Mike is going to recount for that for us. Two T's later in our progression as he lays out the transgressions in verse 5. But to hear that God is coming down, it's not good news. God Almighty is getting off his throne to come down and handle some horrific deeds and met out some wrathful justice. 
This word look at the beginning of the verse indicates that in fact it is already happening. Micah is not saying to his audience, this is going to happen, but in fact it already is happening. The same time Micah is prophesying, there is a contemporary prophet in his day that's also in your Bibles. His name is Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying similar events near the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 10, God speaking through Isaiah, I want to highlight four verses, 5, 6, 10, and 11 of chapter 10 of Isaiah. God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. I will command him to go against the people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like clay in the streets. Verses 10 and 11. As my hand seized the idolatrous kingdoms whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its idols, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? Micah has said that God is coming, he's appearing, and he's doing it through Assyria. The passage from Isaiah demonstrates that, uh, that Assyria to God is merely his tool, his rod of destruction. Because the theophany of God appearing means that he's coming to trample. Our third T, Micah again writes, verses 3 and 4, Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. The prophecy of Micah is already fulfilled. He's talking about Assyria here. Prophecies often have a symbolic language. The Bible uses this a lot. You know Joshua didn't lead the people to a place that was literally flowing with milk and honey, but it was symbolic for being a fertile place of production and cultivation. The symbolism is showing the majesty, supremacy, the sovereignty, and the lordship of God. He's trampling the heights of the earth. Some translations say high places of the earth. And I bring up high places because they are often a reference to places of cultic worship. So it could be Micah is prophetically and symbolically showing God's lordship as in, hey, where you worship your fake gods, they can taste the heel of our real God. Some commentators like this heights of the earth, and they say it's a reference to an easily defendable location. If you have the high ground, you usually have the fight. So, in essence, God is saying, God's stepping on your high fortresses. Like, good thing you have the high ground, but not really, because God's going to step on those. Either way, the point is clear for worshipers of false gods, or a kingdom thinking that they're well defended, God's stepping all over them. The place is going to be leveled. That's the symbolic reason, the point of verse 4. You have mountains melting, you have valleys splitting apart so there's no more valley, just level ground. You have wax near a fire so no more candle, just a glob of leveled wax. It's being leveled. 
water cascading down a mountainside, that connects the symbolism to the historical truth that Micah is talking about Assyria overthrowing Samaria. Because the water that's cascading down a mountainside is Assyria wiping out Samaria, which 1 Kings 16.24 tells us was built on a hill or a mountainside. This is not good news here. This is why many of us balk at the prophets. Take note, God's showing up. He's showing up in the Assyrians. They're going to level you. What we seem to forget when we read these prophecies, what non-believers seem to forget when they are put off by the prophets, is that God is not arbitrarily angry and capricious here. He's not just blowing steam to show off his power. He's not just, hey, I'm God, i got superpowers, I could put these Assyrians to use, so just to show you I'm God, you'll fear me. You and I are made in the image of God, and we balk at the prospect of a God who would act on random, wrathful whims like that, because being in the image of God, we have a sense of justice, fairness, right and wrong. God tells us through Micah that the reason God is coming off his throne to trample the high places is because of the transgressions, our fourth key, of these people. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? We see that Micah here is covering both kingdoms, Jacob's rebellion, Israel, Samaria, the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. The content of Micah's book has prophecies against both kingdoms, though the next two verses after verse 5 seem to hone in on Samaria. This verse kind of has the attitude of Jerusalem is just as bad as Samaria. Judah is just as bad as Israel, that sort of thing. God's coming down to trample the high places of Israel because of the sins of her house. Really, from day one of Israel, the northern kingdom, they've been sinning with false religion simply by being apart from Judah, specifically Jerusalem, the holy city, where God is. In 1 Kings 12, which describes the split of the kingdoms, it ends its little summary of the split, saying simply, Israel is in rebellion against the house of David until today. That is when 1 Kings was written. And I think about rebellion and what Micah said, all this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion, rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. But then Micah asks, what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Jerusalem here is being symbolized altogether as a one big pagan cultic worship center. Jerusalem is the high place of Judah. That's like saying, and Washington, D.C., isn't that the Satanist temple of America? Some of you are like, I would agree. (laughs) Only Judah and Israel were supposed to be God's holy nation. 
So that hurts a little worse. The capital city of God's holy nation is a cultic center. As I said, this is just all around bad news. Take note, a theophany is happening. God's coming to trample his people with Assyria because his people are guilty of horrific transgressions. It seems like something is missing here, doesn't it? It seems like we should open up the word of God to be built up and not beaten down. Friends, the Bible is about Jesus. You should have got that. You need to wake up. Sorry, this is going to get better. I told you we're going through this passage twice because I believe Jesus is all over this passage, and I want you to see it. We're going to go through this again, and this passage uses the language of judgment with words and phrases that yearn, lean into, and simultaneously remind us of the Savior. And it does it through these verses in three movements. Now you have eyes to deal with. Incarnation, that is God becoming flesh. Inauguration, that is the inauguration of Jesus' kingship. And then imputation, that is our sin being put onto him and his righteousness being put into us. We are reminded when noting that Micah says about God revealing himself, coming off his throne, that he in fact does so in his incarnation. Again, Micah writes, Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. We just came out of the Christmas season, and we remember this. It seems that every sort of person was let in on the coming of God into human history in the flesh. All peoples, everywhere, everyone in it, Mary and Joseph, female and male, young and old, as well as the young couple of Joseph and Mary and the old people such as Simeon and Anna at the temple, rich and poor, the wise men from the east, also symbolizing that foreigners and pagans were welcome to Jesus' birth, Herod, kingship and ruler, the lowly shepherds, all peoples, the whole earth, everyone in and are listening and seeing the coming of Jesus, who left his temple, who was rich and for our sake became poor, as Paul puts it. He left his place and he came down not in wrath but in humility. But he did come to trample the high places. He came to condemn the temple of false and hypocritical religion that the Jews were practicing. And instead, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, where we are the temple. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6, Moses was, a faithful, was faithful as a servant in all of God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Jesus is God incarnate. The word incarnate literally means in the flesh. Think about that every time we have chili con carne. <laughs> incarnate. Just trying to get you to think about God all the time. And as we've been alluding to, he inaugurates the kingdom. Micah, in his prophecy of judgment, says in verse 4, The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. 
the language here of mountains melting, valleys splitting apart, as I said a while ago, de depicting a great leveling when it comes to judgment. It reminds me, though, of a passage I covered briefly in the Advent season from Isaiah chapter 40. Again, Isaiah is a contemporary prophet of Micah, but in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is not prophesying judgment. He's prophesying the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. And he's giving us the prophecy that John the Baptist fulfills. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And here we go. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity, humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See the mountains leveled, the valleys are lifted up, leveled for the coming of our King. The glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. Kind of reminds me of Micah 1-2 again there. Furthermore, Micah spoke of prophetic doom concerning the mountains and the valleys. Isaiah spoke of mountains and valleys inaugurating and preparing the way of Christ the King. But the mountains and valleys are doing things. <laughs> it's a language of the elements of the earth obeying their creator. And when Jesus comes, when God incarnate comes, the wind and the waves obey him. And when Jesus comes in on a donkey, the last week of his life fulfilling another prophecy in Zechariah, specifically Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is kind of coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. And when Jesus comes to inaugurate his kingdom, in a very ceremonial way, you know the story. The religious leaders say to Jesus, tell your followers to keep quiet. Because they're saying things like Hosanna, which means save now, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're proclaiming Jesus as the King, the Messiah, the Saving One. And when the Pharisees tell Jesus, tell them to keep quiet, Jesus responds, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. The creation is submissive to King Jesus, and creation testifies to our King, to God, when he incarnates and he inaugurates the kingdom. But finally, as we end again on Micah's final point of transgression as to why God is coming and trampling the mountains, we are reminded why Jesus also came as he inaugurated the kingdom, as it has to do with sin. Micah again writes, all of this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high places of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Sin is a reality. God's holy people here are guilty of transgression. Again, everyone must give an account. No creature is hidden from him. There is one ready to judge the living and the dead. And Micah and the Holy Spirit seem to be speaking two languages. That while the theophany of God to trample and to judge us reminds us of the incarnation of Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom, we alas come to Micah's recounting of transgression. 
and must be reminded of, of this time too, that God came to earth in Jesus to deal with sins as well. Yet when Jesus, when God incarnates, he comes for salvation. He comes to take our judgment. He comes for imputation, for sin to be imputed or credited or put onto him and his righteousness to be imputed, credited, and put onto us. Imputed is a word used doctrinally. Bibles like the New King James Version use it. And in modern Bibles, credited, accounted to, or used. The word impute shows up five times in the fourth chapter of Romans, where Paul is talking about how Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness and how faith makes that transaction. Paul loves this verse in Genesis. He, he quotes it in Romans 4. He quotes it in Galatians. And that is, Abraham believed God, and God credited it, imputed it to him as righteousness. Abraham, as you know, was a, man, was a much older man, his wife too. They're both past childbearing age. Even so, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, as in you're going to have a lot of kids. And though Abraham had moments of weakness believing it, he nevertheless believed it. And so the ends of Romans 4, Paul tells us, because Abraham, he was fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believed in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In Christ, you and I are saved. We are justified. Jesus came. He inaugurated the kingdom. And when it came to sin, we're the only ones guilty of it. But even so, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, our transgressions, so that we might be justified, we might be declared right before God. So that... When justice is meted out again, when God gets off his throne to come down and trample the high places of the earth, for those of us poor in spirit, for those of us who clung to Christ our Savior, our sins will have been declared dealt with through the broken body and shed blood of Christ. I don't know where this hits you today. Maybe you need to, to take note here. Maybe you need to take note that your sins aren't hidden. That God's watching us all and that by God's grace you need to work on repenting of sin. You need to come in and take stock of your own sins and make sure you're right with God through Jesus. That your sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to you. And that's possible through faith. Faith that you believe God is who he says he is. Faith that Jesus has come and he has died for your sins, and he has rose again, conquering the grave, and he is taking away the power of that sin that wants you in the grave eternal. Maybe you feel sinned against, and worse, worse, you feel like no one's watching and no one cares. You're wrong. There is a sovereign God who sees and knows all. And justice will be done, whether it be done to Christ because those who have sinned against you by the grace of God come to Jesus and find forgiveness, 
or justice will ultimately be done to them. Maybe you have some high places in your life that God needs to trample. Maybe like the holy nation of old, here you are, a holy temple, but you've let some idols erect in your heart. And God would say, That's, there's not enough room for me to compete with this lowercase God you find more appealing than me. It may not be wooden, golden, or the like. Maybe it's digital. Maybe it's in the form of something edible. Maybe it's something that occupies your time more than Jesus does. Maybe it's a habit that you give into more often than not and you're enslaved to it. And maybe you need to say to God, God, I, I trust you when I beg you to come down and do a work in my heart because when you discipline me, when you come down to trample the idols in my heart, it will be like a father who's coming into my room to tell me to go to sleep, to obey his commands. You catch my illustration. So I don't know where you're at today, but you do. I believe the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. Let's pray. Father, I'm personally grateful that it seems in your word that you, you speak two languages. You speak judgment because you are horrifically angry with sin. Not because, not because of any desire of yours to be mean or capricious, but because you see what it does to your children. That it oppresses them. That it enslaves them. And you didn't create us for that. So I'm grateful that you're angry. I'm grateful that you're coming for justice. I'm grateful that you came in the power and work of Jesus to put an end to this I'm also grateful that you speak in the language of tenderness and softness and salvation, that we aren't supposed to be left to our devices and our idols, but rather you have come to liberate us from that, and that whenever you come to finally put away sin once and for all, that you've given us Jesus Christ to cling to, but not only for the end, but for now, you've given us life and life abundantly, that we can find freedom from those things that would oppress us, and we can find grace in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can find peace and love, and furthermore, we can hand that out to the world. Father, a lot of things were mentioned in our prayer time, a lot of things happening in the world, and it takes it is comforting to know that you see each and everything going on, and that there will be justice. But also, Father, help us to give people the grace that comes in Jesus. Help us to let people know that they don't need to live in a world of judgment, but in a world of salvation and life. Father, we ask and we pray all these things in the name, and the work, and the power, and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus.